Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Peter Satoris to the Sustainability Agenda. Peter is an environmental anthropologist, a lecturer in education at the University of York, an honorary senior research associate at University College London. His work bridges anthropology with education, development studies and environmental studies, as he explores the cultural and political aspects of the environmental crisis, the limitation of technological solutions to environmental decay and degrowth. He's the author of two books, most recently, Educating for the Anthropocene, Schooling and Activism in the Face of Slow Violence. So thank you very much, Peter, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda. Thank you for having me. Very much looking forward to talking to you. It's not something I've discussed at all, really, uh, on the sustainability agenda, except, I guess, peripherally, um, that being your, your the question of education and some of the key ideas in your latest book. Uh, but before we, we talk about that, can you maybe just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Sure. Uh, well, my name is uh, Peter Sutores. Uh, I am a uh, lecturer at the University of York in the Education Department. And uh, my background is in environmental anthropology, thinking about uh, how different societies, different cultures imagine the future differently. And I also have a bit of a background in, in filmmaking, which maybe we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I work on uh, the sort of intersection of sustainability and uh, education, uh, thinking about how education might uh, respond to this moment, uh, what education uh, can offer, um, how it might help us navigate uh, this this um, predicament that we are in. Excellent. Uh, very interesting. Uh, and uh, also just uh, like to get a little bit of feeling for the lay of the land. Uh, many crises we're facing now, many environmental crises we're facing right now, many climate crises. Um, what in particular worries you the most at the moment, uh, keeps you awake, at least metaphorically. What worries you, Peter? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, as you as you mentioned, you know, it's it's a multiplicity of crises. So in, in the book, I, I use the word uh, multi-crisis. And I think uh, what worries me is that we lose track of that and that uh, we've become so exclusively focused on climate um, that we've forgotten that, uh, you know, the climate emergency is, is just one manifestation of a um, deeper problem, which has to do with 
um, the way that our civilization relates to the natural environment, uh, you know, the way we think about nature as uh, simply just a space of extraction, uh, you know, for sort of carrying out our instrumental goals. And, um, you know, ultimately, to my mind, what that suggests is that we need more of a um, cultural and political shift, rather than simply just swapping one technology for another. And uh, yet, the direction in which we are moving at the moment, I think, um, is, is this kind of a very, um, you know, technocratic, um, sort of, uh, you know, engineering approach, where, you know, we think of uh, the, the environmental crisis as an engineering problem rather than a, a cultural or political problem. And so I worry that this this sort of conversation that we are we are currently having about, you know, whether we can uh, make this transition fast enough in in some ways is not the right conversation to be having. I think we we never properly had the conversation about what the transition actually is, what it is that we should be moving towards. And um, yeah, for me, that is a that is a real worry, because it, it feels like we are uh, wasting valuable time. And, um, and that we do need to go deeper in, in these conversations. Right, right, we can maybe uh, dig into that a little bit uh, later. Also like to know, get a little sense of uh, where, where, where do you see seeds of optimism? Or where do you looking around? Are there any places that uh, any movements, any ideas, any momentum that gives rise to optimism that you feel optimistic about, Peter? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a big part of the the book that uh, we are we are about to talk about um, looks at activist movements, uh, looks at grassroots uh, environmental activism, um, specifically in in India and uh, South Africa. But um, I've also looked at and been engaged at various points uh, with with various movements in uh, different parts of the world. And to me, that's really the space where I where I see a lot of hope. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people who are thinking about uh, these issues very deeply, um, who are taking action, who are um, you know creating spaces for conversation and, and democratic engagement uh, around these issues. Um, it's not something that we necessarily see a whole lot of in the media, or something that is um, uh, that, that feels very present in many people's lives. I think, especially in uh, in the global north. Um, but I, I uh, have, through my work, become um, quite aware that it does exist. Um, and, uh, yeah, that is really where I, where I look for hope and, and for inspiration. Right. Now, that's uh, also something we, we should talk about, what you've learned, what you've seen on the ground, and, and some of the lessons, I suppose, uh, from that. Now, what motivated you to write this book? And can you maybe just talk a, a little bit about the title and what you're getting at, Peter? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's uh, it's going to be a longer answer, but I'll I'll, I'll do my best to <laughs> summarize it uh, quickly. Um, so you know, it is it is my second book, uh, and um, the first book that I that I wrote in in some ways uh, is very closely connected to it, even though on the surface uh, it it looks very different. So maybe I'll just say you know a couple of couple of words about the the first book which uh, came out seven years ago now. Uh, it was called Visions of Development, and it was looking at um, the uh, sort of post-colonial moment in uh, the history of of India. So after after the end of uh, British colonialism um, in in nineteen forty seven. Uh, sort of looking at the first uh, 20, 25 years of, of independence 
and how that newly independent country was um, thinking about uh, the idea of development and progress. And I was really interested in, in, in the fact that um, a lot of that conversation actually happened through the medium of uh, film, documentary film. Um, the government commissioned uh, this filmmaking unit, which uh, made thousands of short films over over the first uh, couple of decades of, of independence, which were shown in the cinemas around the country compulsorily. So anytime you went to see a feature film, you had to sit through sort of 10, 15 minutes of um, what was essentially government uh, propaganda about uh, the kind of development that um, it was hoping to see in the, in the country and uh, letting you know as the citizen what you could do uh, to support that effort. Um, and, you know, in, in the book, I ended up... Uh, being quite critical and, and, and making the argument that it was a very elitist vision, which was uh, essentially designed by um, a relatively small uh, group of um, the so-called elites of the of the uh, newly independent country, and then essentially sort of imposed as a as a kind of blueprint on um, the the rest of the country. And that's really the dynamic that uh, this new book, uh, Visions of, of Develop, um, sorry, Educating for the Anthropocene, that, that, that we're talking about now, um, where, where that really sort of picks, picks up. I mean, it, it looks at the same dynamic um, in the present world. Uh, it looks at, uh, you know, who are the people designing the blueprints for the future? Who are the people that are expected to implement them? Uh, what is the role of the education system uh, in spreading those blueprints, uh, in either opening up or uh, closing down opportunities for uh, democratic dialogue about what the future should look like? And uh, really, the argument that I uh, that I make in this in this new book is is very similar in many ways that that we do have uh, a polarization, a polarized society between the so-called leaders and the so-called masses, and that it is, it is a, a fairly small um, group of people who are um, designing these blueprints and, and expecting the rest of society to, um, to follow. And, and perhaps uh, that is one of, the, one of the reasons why maybe our um, action or our progress hasn't been, hasn't been quite, quite so swift. Um, but you also asked me to say a bit about the title. Um, so the title is uh, Educating for, for the Anthropocene. Um, the word Anthropocene has been uh, thrown around in, in academia. Um, I, I know that you know, some people may be familiar with it, some, some people may not. Originally, it comes, it comes from geology, and it, it uh, refers to basically a new geological era, you know, the idea that we as human beings have started a new um a new era uh, that we've uh, very fundamentally altered the, the the chemical physical composition of the planet you know millions of years from now the traces of, of that uh, change will still be there and you're right uh, a lot of people are not happy with it because it uh, tends to uh, lump everybody in in a single category as if we are all equally responsible uh, for um, environmental destruction the human species, as it were, yeah. And, and sure, surely, if you're looking at education, there are questions to be asked about the distribution, the benefits and the costs. And does that idea of the Anthropocene sufficiently include those? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I mean, exactly. It is It is a, sort of a distribution of responsibility, I suppose, you know, different people being uh, responsible in different ways, but also of uh, the threats, the, the costs and... Um, 
you, you know the the burden that different um, societies, different populations uh, bear for environmental decay. But you know the way um, the way I use the term in the book is is slightly different. Um, I tend to think of it more as something forward looking, right? That you know we've now entered this this era, which um, comes with this kind of unprecedented. Um, challenge, you know, in terms of the responsibility that we that we collectively bear, uh, not for what happened, but what will happen. Uh, and so, in that sense, um, I'm not saying that it's not important to look at the past, you know, and, and to to sort of work out who's responsible for what. Uh, but when we think about education um, as a process that uh, responds to the present moment, to the contemporary moment. Uh, you know, we tend to think of education for the 21st century. That's that's a sort of buzzword that gets thrown around a lot in education. And really what I'm suggesting is that maybe we should replace that by thinking about educating for the Anthropocene. Because, the, you know, the 21st century is a very arbitrary marker, uh, which doesn't really mean much. Whereas the Anthropocene, I think, is something that gives us pause once we realize what it, what it really means. Uh, in terms of the kinds of changes that we've that we've created, so I think really kind of looking looking into the future more than into the past is is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, very interesting. And 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 it goes on schooling and activism in the face of slow violence. So there's a lot going on there, <laughs> I suppose. In the sense of schooling, yes, you know uh, the education you're talking about, but extends beyond that activism. Um, so I'm interested in uh, why uh, you think that activism should be, could be, or might be connected to to the idea of education and schooling, and also, I guess, just maybe for uh, to talk a little bit about the idea of slow violence. Uh, I, I, I spoke to Rob Nixon uh, a little while ago, um, mm-hmm. so uh, very lucid discussion about that. But you know, f- from your perspective, what, why you highlight slow violence? So I guess that's the the, the kind of uh, those two ideas bringing together activism and schooling and and maybe a little bit about uh, why slow violence. Sure. Um, well, I guess I, I do need to say a bit about the slow violence first uh, so that the answer to the other uh, part of the question makes makes sense. Uh, so it sounds like you, your listeners will already be familiar uh, with, with the concept, um, you know, which is basically that um, some of this destruction uh, environmental destruction unfolds rather slowly, uh, which makes it difficult to to perceive, to kind of see, witness in in real time. Uh, in contrast to some of the fast violence of you know war, uh, the kind of destruction that we see in in everyday news, um, and you know that makes it particularly difficult for education. How do you educate somebody about something which uh, they may not be able to perceive? Uh, with their senses, you know, something that, uh, you know, is very, very gradual, sort of difficult to grasp. Um, and, you know, the the sort of um, framing of the book, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it takes place in, in India and in South Africa. Um, and these are, you know, specific communities within, within those two countries that I looked at. Um, and each of those places um, is facing um, really sort of extreme levels of environmental degradation. And I think of them as um, basically spaces of the future in the sense that uh, much of the rest of the world may not be facing that level of degradation just yet, but um, will be eventually. And um, in that sense, it's a little bit like stepping into a time machine, sort of looking at, you know, how are the communities of people who are already experiencing this, this kind of burden? How are they coping? What are they doing? What kinds of strategies are they coming up with? 
and that's where the activism um, comes in. That once you once you go to these spaces where, basically, the way I put it in the book is that these are spaces of accelerating slow violence. So the violence is no longer quite so slow in these places. It affects everyday people in in very very tangible ways. Um, and you know, once you are in spaces like that, um, activism uh, as a both form of resistance, but also as a form of uh, proposing alternatives, alternative ideas about um, the future um, becomes very, very um, noticeable in, in the communities. And what I have uh, picked up on while while doing this research uh, was that uh, a lot of the young people in these in these spaces, spaces of accelerating slow violence, um, are really drawing on the activists in their communities. Um, to understand, you know, to make sense of uh, their predicament and of the future. And so in some ways, uh, the activism is um, providing the kind of education for the Anthropocene that the school fails to provide, or is very limited in, in providing. What do you mean by activism there, Peter? Um, well, so uh, specifically, in, you know, in, in the context of um, those those two places uh, that, I, that I looked at, uh, there were two um, activist movements and um, one um, is uh, a movement against large dams in uh, in India but you know uh, as part of that uh, narrative it also questions and, and, and critiques the kind of larger projects of development uh, development as something that's inspired by uh, by the West uh, by the kind of industrial uh, modernity uh, large infrastructural um, projects and in, in South Africa, um, it's a it's a movement which um, uh, targets uh, air pollution, industrial air pollution, that um, affects neighborhoods um, of you know people of color that are affected disproportionately. So so it's looking both at the um, the issue of air pollution, but it's also looking at uh, environmental racism and how how different groups of people um, might be might be impacted differently. Right, right. Your uh, thinking draws on a number of thinkers, and I guess part of a tradition and dialogue uh, of critiques of, of of education from you know figures like Paulo Freire and mm-hmm. uh, I guess Ivan Illich as well. Uh, what is it about the environmental question that would uh, build upon and, and maybe make different assertions or, or ask different questions than their thinking? When you look at the, the broader environmental and, and the, the impact of the Anthropocene, ideas which are not formally you know, dealt with uh, in their thinking, uh, and even people like Bell Hooks look at mm-hmm. you know, uh, the power structures and the inequality you know, the, the inadequacies of traditional education systems that serve maybe needs of, of dominant cultures and so forth. Where and, and what is, is different when it comes to the environment? Well, I mean, if, if anything, I, I would say that uh, the, the environmental multi-crisis, you know, to, to go back to that uh, word, um, and the Anthropocene uh, just force us to go back to some of those ideas. And I think, you know, you... Uh, as you as you said, you know, uh, you sort of really hit the nail on the head that there are a lot of a uh, lot of thinkers that over over the years have um, made similar points, and you know you can go you can go much further back, you know, all the way to to ancient Greece and the the sort of wisdom of of know thyself, you know, as, as the kind of goal of education 
that the goal of education is is to understand oneself and and through that to also understand the world. Um, so I think this sort of tradition of kind of humanistic uh, education and uh, really just sort of reconnecting with with our um, humanity of which uh, imagination, imagining f- the future and having a dialogue about it um, are very key components. I think you know these are these are things that uh, just sort of inherently, innately we are we are good at as as human beings. Um, and in many, you're not suggesting a an extra module. No. No, an extra module on uh, the environmental impact, the Anthropocene and the environment, and you study some thinkers, some people who are researching these ideas. It's it's much deeper than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it really gets at the the very goal of education. What what is actually the point of education? Is it to reproduce um, society as it is, or uh, is it to allow people to sort of look at society from the outside a little bit? And, um, you know, and critique it and think about how society maybe could be different uh, in the future. And I think the environmental crisis uh, makes that uh, that task or, or um, you know, that idea of reimagining the future, it, it makes it uh, feel very urgent. It feels like something we, we need to do. Um, but you know, it is something that's been that's been around for centuries, and and I think, um, yeah, you know, in in some ways, this book, uh, you know, maybe what the, the new element that it brings to it is this link with activism is that is that it really shows that a lot of these activist approaches um, to to dialogue to the future um, resonate with a lot of these ideas that um, people who have been thinking about education have thought about, but ultimately, they're very similar ideas. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and what does it look like in, in, in you know, its fullest expression that you've seen uh, on the ground in, in South Africa or in India, indeed? Clearly, the whole wide education system within a country includes so many different elements, but particular schools, particular areas that you 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 would highlight that, that show the way in which this approach, this activism, uh, thinking, and uh, an action works well. Mm-hmm. Well, so the book is an ethnography, which means that it's got a lot of you know stories and and, and characters, and it, it it tries to sort of uh, really ground uh, some of these ideas, you know, in in, in particular um, situations and and places and and people. And so, you know, without kind of getting into the into the stories, I suppose what I could say is um, um, is that. Uh, you know, we we tend to have an assumption about uh, you know what activism is. We tend to think of activism as um, resistance. You know, people uh, marching in the streets, holding up banners, shouting things. Um, but I think what I found in in these communities where I did this research uh, was that you know, as, as much as there is that kind of activism, um, there's also um, something something about activism uh, in these spaces which is. Uh, much more about simply just creating spaces uh, for people to feel heard. You know, so as a as a young person who who goes to school, uh, where you're not generally in these education systems, at least in the uh, sort of underperforming government schools, you don't have much of an opportunity uh, to do really anything other than rote learning. You know, to have suddenly this space where you are. Uh, treated like a citizen, not just a future citizen, not somebody who, you know, one day uh, might have something to say, but somebody who, you know, in, in the here and now, 
uh, has something to say, and, and it is important to listen to that. Uh, you know, creating these forums where people simply just come, come together and um, uh, have an opportunity to express uh, their views of the future and the kinds of narratives that they think are important uh, for society to pay attention to, you know, a, a kind of validation that um, as a individual, you are not just a cog in a machine, you're not just something that is meant to contribute to the economic growth or, you know, uh, expanding the human capital of your country, you are a political being. And, uh, you know, your your view matters, you know, even even if you're not yet 18, even if you come uh, from a um, very poor socioeconomic background, uh, still, you know, it is important for others to listen to what you have to say. And um, to me, uh, that was one of the biggest lessons of of, uh, of this research. That uh, you know, this kind of deliberation and, and dialogue um, really is is um, is key. I think uh, to to um, you know dealing with this environmental crisis that we are in. And this question, I guess, between this this idea of action is something that I think you draw on on the thinking of Hannah Arendt, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you talk a little bit about that as well. That kind of idea expectation or hope that something new emerges i suppose or is prompted yeah exactly i mean um arendt uh, uses these these words that sound you know deceptively simple like politics and and action but in fact she means very particular things when she uses those words and um you know those are quite different from the sort of everyday meanings uh, that that we might uh, you know, her, here in the in the media. Um, so, you know, when she talks about action, um, she means you know multiple people coming together. She says action is impossible in isolation. You you have to have multiple people because action is inherently uh, political. It it comes out of people negotiating their their differences. Um, it comes out of people agonizing over their differences. And, um, you know, and it is something um, unexpected, something that you, you wouldn't be able to easily, easily predict. Uh, there's something fresh, something new about, about action. Um, so, you know, she makes this distinction between behavior and, and action, which I think is very um, important. You know, nowadays we hear a lot about behavioral economics, you know, and the ways in which we need to tweak our behaviors and we need to nudge people in one direction or another. But Arendt's idea of action is is much more radical than that. It's it's not just about you know tweaking your behavior here and there. Uh, again, you know, following the blueprint that somebody else has created, but you know, creating your own blueprint and and acting on it. Um, and I think that is the sort of thing that our education, um, you know, for the most part, really not only fails to do, but it it actively creates barriers to that kind of thinking. I suppose, though, if you open the gates to that kind of questioning, it can lead to, I guess, from from the perspective of a traditional education system, some kind of dangerous outcomes where you start to question maybe the authority of the school, the way the school operates, you know, the legitimacy of the the, the structure of the teaching and so forth. How do you draw a line around that and, and kind of say this book is very focused on the, on, the, on the environment, on the Anthropocene? and the urgency of the situation. But the kinds of ideas, the kind of thinking and the kind of activism that, that comes with this is, is a kind of solvent that could dissolve the whole thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I also, yeah, I once got a question that was a bit similar to this, you know, which was basically, if, if you're going to encourage activism in education, then, you know, aren't you also sort of opening the floodgates to, I don't know, right-wing extremists, right? I mean, there are different kinds of activists, you know, who fall on the sort of different um, sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, I, I suppose um, my my answer to that is is that, um, again, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these thinkers and people like Hannah Arendt, who have um, thought about these these questions, um, they, they do give us a lot of clues about, you know, how we how we might be able to do this. So, for example, Arendt talks about this idea of um, agonistic pluralism, uh, which I, I talk about quite a bit in the in the book, um, which is also an idea that, that uh, the, the French um, political philosopher Chantal Mouffe uh, uses in in her work. And, you know, the idea of agonistic pluralism is that rather than negotiating our differences through these, um, you know, very kind of formalized, formalistic institutions that have these very rigid rules about how we engage and how we express our political differences, um, you know, we, we have more of a direct um, confrontation, I suppose, you know, around, around them, um, which allows uh, for, um, you know, uh, which sort of makes sure that the conversation doesn't get sanitized. I mean, if you if you look at the political spectrum right now, uh, you will hardly find anybody uh, within the kind of mainstream of it that questions the idea of of sort of infinite economic growth, for example, um, because those those ideas that fall outside of that uh, get excluded. You know, they're not part of the conversation. The the systems, the institutions that we have set up, can't cope with that level of uh, difference in 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 politics. Um, and so the idea of agonistic pluralism is that you you do uh, actually uh, you know confront these these differences in a much more direct way. But then when you look at you know uh, how these thinkers have approached this idea, they they make it very clear that you know this is not some kind of anarchy. This is not some kind of free for all where um, anybody can can say and do whatever they want. Um, that this is still within the framework of a democratic society. Um, where you you have to make sure that um, anybody who's who's taking part in this process uh, views their um, you know the, the person that says something different from what they're saying uh, not as an enemy to be destroyed but um, but you know as an intellectual opponent uh, which is you know quite a different quite a big difference uh, quite an important distinction to make and what about making this happen uh, turning this into program program of change. Presumably, many teachers would resonate with uh, many of the ideas that you you touch on and and explore, and 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 you know, and these uh, thinkers we've talked about, and yet operating in a context, a uh, managerial context, uh, where much of the momentum around education is preparing people for the workforce, and 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 to the degree that ideas like climate change are impinged upon that it would be to have better engineers have to be more educated understanding of the green uh, economy or the green you know of the environment generally quite a sorry picture in, in many in many countries and in many regions when it comes to the way education is actually implemented how how do you see change well uh, that's a great question <laughs> i mean um this is maybe one of those sort of more controversial aspects of the book, but you know, in in some ways, I sort of I, I don't really say this sort of very explicitly. It's kind of there in, in between the lines, I suppose. Um, 
in, in some ways, the education system as we know it may not actually be the best place uh, for for this kind of education. And and I think we need to be making a distinction between education and schooling. Yes. There are other ways, you know, for people to be educated than than schooling. Yes. And um, and in fact, you know, the book shows this quite clearly. You know, when you look at some of the young people, the, the characters in the in, in the book uh, from these communities, it is very clear that you know a lot of the ideas that they have about the future uh, don't come from school. They they come from the activists, or they come from uh, you know their their grandfather. You know, intergenerational dialogue in a in a kind of informal setting. And um, in some ways, maybe what the education system needs to do is is to get out of the way. It it needs to um, not be putting up active obstacles uh, to these kinds of grassroots processes uh, and you know different ways in which in which uh, young people might be learning about and for the Anthropocene, uh, rather than expecting that the education system can um, facilitate the process. Uh, Maybe there's something to be said for simply just saying, "Look, you know, the education system um, isn't isn't the place. Um, so let's just let these processes unfold." Yeah, let them unfold, or somehow uh, seed them and help them to grow and facilitate mm-hmm. them and identify ways in which other community type activities can engage with young people and widen and broaden and deepen their their understanding of of these questions but also in terms of their actions and i think this question you know and i've seen this uh, up close with steiner which is wonderful you know where the kids grow things you Mm -hmm. see that and that's fantastic kind of experience very different from many many kinds of education in 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 you know urban areas or in any area but it it, it goes more than that because uh, it's it's about the social political uh power relations in society yes yes uh, indeed and i think that that is where uh you know spaces like activism um, are are very important because they do engage uh, with um you know, with power hierarchies, they they engage with questions of uh, who gets to decide and and why, who gets excluded and and why. Um, you know, they oftentimes look at issues of of uh, privilege, underprivilege, and uh, you know, in 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 my research, I've um, oftentimes encountered the view that this is not really something that we should be um, talking about in in schools. Uh, partly because it's politicizing young people, partly because young people may not actually, depending on their age, you know, they may not actually be be able to sort of fully grasp, um, you know, what the sort of the complexity of these of these issues. And I think the research in the book really, really sort of disproves both of these narratives. Uh, I think um, opening up these conversations is not uh, politicizing in the sense of the capital P of, of you know, politicize, where we are encouraging uh, people to join a particular political party or adopt a particular political view. It's it's simply sensitizing them to these conversations. And uh, I also found that, uh, you know, young people, children um, actually can uh, engage, you know, with these issues at a, at a younger age than, than I think we conventionally assume um, not not necessarily in intellectual conversations, but you know, in terms of how what they feel, what they perceive, what they sense about the community they're in. Yes, and, and when it comes to you know, the book's focus on the Anthropocene, 
the the kinds of questions that we face, the social problems we face, you know, slow violence, uh, some of it's not slow, some of it's pretty immediate, some of it's right in the faces of, of some of these people right now and some of these students. But the idea of it unfolding over time and this idea of the West is yet to come, we're going to see in the climate so forth. But there are you know, already existent issues, you know, very powerful issues, inequality, racism, questions like that that aren't for tomorrow, that are somehow embedded in, in many societies, exacerbated today. So is it all about the Anthropocene per se, or is it broader kind of approach to this kind of critical activist engagement and thinking? I suppose um, perhaps this is this is where some of the origins of the Anthropocene are, um, you know, quite interesting to to look at. I mean, in the beginning, I mentioned that I'm, I'm using the word mostly to think about the future, but uh, there are lots of people who have been thinking about how the Anthropocene came about, uh, when it when it began, how it began, and you know when you look at some of those um, conversations, uh, you know, 1950s nuclear bomb testing during you know the Cold War, uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, um, the sort of beginning of, of um, agriculture, agricultural societies. I mean, some, those are some of the beginning points that have been put forward, and um, you know a lot of them have to do with um, sort of colonial forms of, of extraction, uh, of subjugating either the natural environment or um, other people, uh, seeing the environment or other people as uh, somehow um, instrumental uh, to, to the goals of, you know, whoever is doing the extracting and the subjugating. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that these are separate issues. I think um, you know the the way we we found ourselves in this in this predicament um, is is through uh, you know the the sort of uh, legacies of of uh, colonialism, imperialism, um, you know the the ways in which uh, that impacts on um, our current levels of uh, inequality, um, racism, bigotry. Uh, I mean, these are all, to my mind, um, connecting issue, connected issues. Um, so we can't really talk about the Anthropocene, you know, without without acknowledging that this is this is part of the part of the issue. And also, that's perhaps where that expression uh, "environmental multicrisis" um, is is quite quite apt, because um, it also implies that there are these different layers uh, to this issue. That again, it's it's not just a simple engineering problem but something with much, much deeper um, cultural and political roots. Indeed, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what are some things that you've seen that uh, inspire you, uh, you know, teachers, uh, uh, head teachers, uh, educationalists who have uh, gone with this, who've understood this somehow, mightn't be explicitly always environmental, but have understood these ideas and worked to uh, inculcate and to seed them and to uh, and, and and hopefully with some measure of success. Indeed, uh, there's a there's a section in, in the book called Outlier Teachers, and it, it looks at uh, teachers who. Uh, while they remain uh, within the sort of mainstream education system, um, are also a little bit subversive. They they try to push the boundaries. They um, they have you know various ideas and agendas that they that they try to bring to their practice as educators. 
And um, yeah, I mean, these are, uh, for me, they're really uh, fascinating and, and inspiring figures. Um, some of them are uh, teachers who are themselves also activists. So in some cases, uh, they would literally, uh, you know, take their kids on a on a march or a protest, um, or you know, they would they would uh, work with the kids to come up with um, placards, you know, come up with slogans. Um, so you know, some of some of it is at that level. Uh, some of it is 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 more subtle. Um, where uh, there was this one teacher in particular that I that I talked to. Who who told me about this idea that that she had about the hidden curriculum? The idea that there is the state curriculum, which is what you what you teach, but there is also a hidden curriculum, which is what you bring to it as a teacher. And um, and I think that was um, really really sort of uh, hitting the nail on the head. In that you know every teacher has a hidden curriculum. I mean every teacher brings their um, assumptions about the world, their beliefs about the world into their practice. Um, but this particular teacher was was really aware of that and very conscious, uh, very consciously shaping that hidden curriculum to achieve um, certain certain goals or you know certain certain aims that in her case um, had to do with um, the idea that uh, uh, you know she wanted the, the children to feel empowered, uh, empowered to um, stand up for themselves, stand up for their communities, um, to confront. Uh, the uh, the histories of this was in South Africa, so in, in this case, the environmental racism against their community, um, and uh, you know, to me that was really brave because I think this teacher was was you know taking some pretty pretty significant risks um, by doing things that were not sanctioned by the government. Um, but you know, I suppose it is it is uh, people like that and approaches to education like that that. Um, ultimately can uh, can really make a difference. Now, that's very interesting because, yeah, the forces that operate on a school and in particular in, in an education system and the goals, the, the targets, the tick boxing, the, uh, all of these, uh, the direction of travel is, is not uh, in the direction of these progressive educational ideas, except, I suppose, in some isolated cases or, or maybe even growing in, in, in some areas as, as, as you've come across. Um, I often notice that uh, when, when I ask uh, people on, on, on the podcast, you know, what makes them optimistic? And, and, and uh, quite often uh, interviewees, uh, they say young people, you know, mm-hmm. young people. Uh, the, the possibilities, the, the ways in which young people are engaged, and obviously people like Greta and so forth, you know. Uh, mm. But um, when I've spoken to uh, done a few episodes with younger people, there's a very significant, you know, emotional and psychological toll that they carry that they for the work that they do. Yeah. They're in many cases, you know, on their own. They're young. They're it's it's they need support. So. That's an aspect I'm just wondering about. A lot of energy, you know, young people have the energy and, uh, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. at stake and um, they're open to these ideas. But at the same time, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a fight. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, you know, if, you, if you're going to be having these dialogues and these conversations and, and really sort of um, facing up to these issues, um that that can be really quite quite traumatic, you know, as a as a young person uh, with your life ahead of you, thinking about what that life might look like as a result of 
the mess that you've inherited from previous generations. Um, but you know, one thing that I that I've noticed um, while doing this work, which surprised me maybe a little bit, um, was that there is a kind of unexpected thing that happens. You know, when you when you are talking about these issues in that kind of didactic way, you know, where you're sort of passing down a um, you know a narrative or or a blueprint uh, or a vision for the world that that can be very uh that can be very depressing and it can uh, feel like you're paralyzed as a young person there's no space for me to act to do anything within this narrative within this blueprint um but i think if you are opening up these conversations um in in a way that encourages young people to to truly uh, like i was saying earlier you know to to be political beings to to realize their potential as political beings to enter the conversation about what the future ought to be. Um, I think, um, you know, and deploying their imagination in the process. Um, I think that in itself um, helps deal with some of the apathy or or some of the the hopelessness that otherwise uh, they might experience because suddenly they are in a position where they're being listened to, uh, they're being taken seriously, um, and even if they don't necessarily know how to achieve the kinds of futures that they're articulating, um, you know, at the very least, they're creating through imagination the possibility for something different. And then you can think about, you know, how do you how do you get to that? And what is your role as an individual in, in trying to make that possible? Um, but just the very existence of that possibility, I think, has a really profound effect. Yes, I'm, I'm also just thinking about, I suppose, the kind of emotional or psychological support systems for students, mm. young people, you know, and again, it's... it's um, of course, you know, that's, that is part of the education system today. There's, there are support systems for students, you know, for various kinds of stressful situations and, you know, uh, problems they have and so forth. But I guess that's something that would also ideally be explicitly thought about and that there would be some kind of support mechanisms there as well because uh, there's a tremendous weight of institutional and cultural status quo and uh, to ask these questions to you know to go into uncharted territory is uh can be quite challenging indeed indeed i think that's where um maybe we also need to think a little bit about you know what is the role of the teacher what is the role of the educator what is what is the role of the school um is the school uh does, does the school simply exist to um kind of uh you know fill uh, people's people's brains with information or with you know helping them practice certain skills or or is it also a, a supportive space a safe space to to explore some of these questions um to you know think about strategies about uh, you know what you what you can do as a, as a as a young person as an individual as a collective as a group um and to have these conversations um in in ways that are um safe i mean you know of course you are inherently taking some risks by having those conversations, but but you know being prepared uh, for situations where where uh, you know young people might need might need support um, is important. I suppose this this um, also links into the kind of epidemic of you know mental health um, that we have we have seen um, already before before COVID, but certainly even more so since COVID. Um, you know where I think we, we we really need to be paying attention to this. Not just because of the Anthropocene or because of you know environmental 
um, concerns. But um, but I think in general, you know, we, we've got a, a generation going through the school system now that is um, facing you know a pretty pretty rough landscape and. Um, and I think we would do well to recognize that and to to provide adequate support, uh, which I think few countries have been have been really paying paying attention to in the way that it deserves. I guess underlying this is is this idea that you talk about, which is imagining the future and how to do that. Ways of working with young people to do that. Now you've been involved in filmmaking and uh, and other ways of, of working with young people. Can you talk about that a little bit, Peter? Uh, sure. So actually, as as part of this uh, this book, the research behind this book, um, we worked with with these young people in these communities on on making short films and sort of documentary observational films. Uh, so I would go in and I, I would uh, teach them some some very um, basic filmmaking techniques, and um, you know then give them some equipment that they could um, take home and um, you know keep for a few months as they were filming. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they basically made these um, sort of 10, 10, 15 minute uh, short documentaries um, about their experience uh, of, of life in, in, these, in these communities. Um, and, you know, that in itself became um, a kind of record of um, their thinking. Uh, and, you know, the book's got lots of visuals in it and it has a lot of these sort of... Uh, you know, frame grabs from these from these films that that I kind of talk about in the book, um, but it also just became an opportunity to to talk to them. You know, to sort of build some trust. You know, to work on something together, um, and to then you know sort of sit down and and just ask, okay, so wh- why did you choose to film this thing or that thing, and why did you choose to you know cut from this shot to this shot here? You know, what were you trying to say? It, it just opens up all of those all of those conversations that you would as a researcher otherwise uh, really struggle to have if you were just you know kind of sitting somebody down for an interview in a very kind of rigid way um so i tried to i tried to be a little bit sort of innovative with the method uh, here and to do it in a way that was sort of child friendly or sort of friendly to the young people who were who were involved in the research and that is is an important idea isn't it that that actually there it's in their hands that the creative expression that finding a you know, finding their voice in a sense, a way of talking about or or just being given the opportunity to talk about in an interesting way or creative way uh, their experience. Absolutely. And, and also, I think uh, we have this obsession, you know, in our education systems with sort of verbal expression. But uh, some of these ideas, you, you, you do need to think visually, you do need to think acoustically. Um, you know, if if you are going to really engage with uh, you know imagination and and thinking about what the world is and and what it might become, uh, it's it's difficult to do in words. And um, you know, for for some reason, we we just seem to think that that words are the only uh, sort of medium of expression that is is worthwhile. Um, but you know, to, to my mind, that's really not the case. You know, you look at cave paintings. You know, you look at historically how how humans have communicated their ideas. I think there's a longer history of visual expression than there is a verbal expression um, and something, you know, that we that we forget about uh, quite quite a lot, I think. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. And how has the book been received? Uh, it's been it's been, uh, you know, uh, mostly received by fellow academics, obviously, because it is a it is an academic book. And I guess what I've been trying to do is to open up um 
you know, some of these conversations uh, outside of academia. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful uh, to you as well for uh, for inviting me and, and having this having this chat. Um, because I think, you know, we, we oftentimes do this academic research and, um, you know, we, we go to conferences and, and we do lectures, uh, you know, to very few people uh, who already are more or less convinced of what we're saying. And um, so I think there's something to be said for really, really taking that research out of the academia, academic environment and, and um, having these kinds of conversations. So that's something that I'm still I'm still trying to do. It's um, it's not the easiest you know, thing, thing to be doing. I think, uh, you know, the conversation about the environment is um, uh, dominated by certain certain narratives. And I think there is the kind of mainstream narrative in the media around, you know, we've already d- determined what we need to do. And now we just need to sort of work out how fast we can get there. And I think work like like mine, you know, which is which is questioning that and actually saying, wait a minute, maybe we are not really headed in the right direction. And maybe it's not just a question of how fast we get there, but also where it is we're trying to get to. Um, I think people have less patience for that uh, at this at this point, which, you know, you can understand. Um, So I think that is that is the kind of uh, struggle, you know, that I'm that I'm having. Um, But uh, yeah. A sense of urgency crowds out you know, other kinds of considerations, which is pretty shocking, really, because the scale of change that's envisioned is extraordinary and the pace is is unprecedented. And you would just hope that people would take a little bit of time to think about some of the, you know, implications of these massive scale changes. Um, what's next for you, Peter? Um, so I'm starting to uh, work on a, a new project, which sort of follows from this. And it's really thinking about um, activism, so the sort of the phenomenon of environmental activism um, across different cultures and, and how it manifests in, in different different places. Um, and, you know, people who don't necessarily call themselves activists, uh, but who are doing things that are sort of pro-environmental and that contain some kind of an element of imagined future or, you know, different, different way of, of approaching these questions. Um, some, I'm, I'm really interested in um, sort of breaking down these um, stereotypes that we have of, you know, who an activist is and, and what an activist does. And um, really going to the grassroots and, and, and just seeing, you know, what, what people are uh, what people are doing and, and how they're approaching this and, and maybe trying to document just the kind of wide spectrum of what people are doing that we don't hear nearly enough about in the in the media. Um, so that is that is the current that is the plan anyway. I mean, I've been in the process of you know writing writing research grants in support of that work, and uh, that that in itself is a huge undertaking. Is trying to get get something like this funded. But assuming that it does get funded, uh, I think the next the next few years will be uh, that this will be the main focus for me. Brilliant, fascinating, uh, really important work, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about the work that you've been doing, the important research, and uh, I wish you all the very best with your ongoing work, Peter. Thank you, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to speak to you today. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, 
a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.